Alex Gladstein. Welcome back to Bitcoin Magazine Podcast. Always a pleasure having you on the show. How's it going? Thanks for having me. It's a big week for the Human Rights Foundation and for freedom lovers around the world. So happy to come talk to you about what we have in store. Yeah, absolutely. Um, For those who do not know, the Oslo Freedom Forum is going on later this week. Alex is here to give us the update on what is happening in the world and in in, in human rights around the globe, as well as what we can expect from this this key event that happens every single year. Um, So Alex, I guess before we get into the main subject, why don't you introduce yourselves for any of our newer listeners? Sure. So I've been working at the nonprofit called the Human Rights Foundation since 2007. It's a nonprofit based in New York City that helps challenge authoritarianism around the world and promote and protect individual rights and civil liberties uh, for people who live under dictatorships and other kinds of authoritarian regimes. Uh, Our scope of work uh, covers about 4.3 billion people who live under about 95 different kinds of authoritarian regimes everywhere from Cuba to Venezuela to uh, Zimbabwe to Eritrea to Belarus, Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, Vietnam. Um, Unfortunately, there's many, many, many repressive governments around the world where people have a very, very restricted set of civil liberties where they essentially can't uh, write an op-ed in their newspaper to change policy where they can't, you know, peacefully march in the streets without uh, getting abducted or killed or whatever. Um, where the government itself is is not uh, separated. There's no separation of powers where there's usually just a one party uh, or one small group of people that control everything. And that's a very particular political problem that we seek to address by supporting civil society, journalism, um, different kinds of like citizen-led groups, civil society organizations. Um, we run a series of uh, campaigns, initiatives, advocacy uh, fronts and, and, and conferences. So our, one of our biggest projects is called the Oslo Freedom Forum, which is a annual gathering that actually started uh, like uh, Bitcoin. It was launched in 2009. It was incepted before then. And uh, throughout the last um, 12 or so years, we've been bringing together dissidents from all these countries in one place where um, people from different industries like technology, philanthropy, finance can can come and listen to their stories and, and see how they can help make a difference in the world. Awesome. And I guess before we get into this year's Oslo Freedom Forum, let's get a quick update on like, from what you are seeing, like, what is the state of human rights in the world? Um, Just based on, you know, the news, Corona, lockdowns, all that stuff. It seems as though human rights are are trending down. I guess, what's the current status of human rights since uh, maybe we last spoke uh, like six or seven months ago? Yeah, well, I mean, you can, uh, there's different ways to zoom out on this answer to this question. I mean, obviously, human rights are doing much better than they were 700 years ago, you know, when everybody lived under a dictator and life expectancy for a human was about 30. Um, but, um, you know, because of uh, industriousness and basically increased communications, global trade, capitalism, uh, enlightenment values, all these different things, increased education, increased sanitation, all these different things. Um, it's much more like, it's much less likely you'll die a violent death today. And it, it makes a lot less sense to, to have a super, you know, overly violent society. So um, 
in terms of just like a global point of view, human rights are certainly at a high point from that perspective, from like a historical perspective, but certainly in, in a micro sense for people who have only been alive for the last few decades, right? Um, there's a lot of tension in, in the global climate in the air. I, I think we have like a hinge point here where the world's largest country is ruled by a dictatorship in the Chinese Communist Party, and they're pushing this kind of techno-dystopian um, you know, techno-authoritarianism basically forward that a lot of other governments are going to try and copy. And in the meantime, you know, democracies have their own issues and their own problems with like uh, basically the rise of a lot of this uh, inequality and populism that had, you know, subsided in many ways after World War II for, for several decades, but now is like sort of like back to 1920s, 1930s proportions. If you look at a lot of metrics from both uh, voter data and also, um, economic data, if you look at the way that like, sort of governments are trying to manage economies and the way people are responding, there's a lot of tension in the air in democracies. So there's um, a lot of friction on the edges. And the good news is, you know, people have tools today where they can fight for their own rights in a more peaceful way, like, uh, and they can communicate with each other privately, which is huge. So I'll just give one example. Currently in Belarus, um, People are peacefully protesting Europe's last dictator or you know, like, you know, actual Soviet era strongman, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, who um, has been in power since the mid 90s, early 90s and uh, wants to keep ruling forever and keeps rigging elections. But people are, you know, at this point saying it's enough. And, you know, these are people who are live miles away from Poland and, and Latvia and they feel like they're a part of Europe and they are part of Europe. They're in the heart of Europe and they're ruled by this like super. Um, kind of old school dictators. So they have gone out in the streets in the hundreds of thousands and uh, remained amazingly peaceful. And they are kind of trying to opt out of the system. They're trying to uh, show the power of the powerless is kind of the old quote that Václav Havel uh, promoted uh, back in Czechoslovakia. But they're, they're basically trying to expose the regime and show the strength of the people. And they're doing that through strikes. So people who work for all these like factories and government-led agencies, whether it's police, firefighters, whatever, they're kind of like, they're stopping working and they're protesting. And that's like reducing the effectiveness of the state. Um, there's also quite a bit of interesting opting out when it comes to the economy, uh, finance. Um, the single best way to get money into Belarus today is, is via Bitcoin, um, which is kind of interesting. So a lot of the um, opposition is sending uh, money into Belarus today via Bitcoin, which is a really interesting phenomenon. So there's a lot going on there and, and it actually does look possible that those people could have a victory, right? Um, because of a lot of these tools and techniques ranging from signal to telegram, um, to Bitcoin, but yeah, it's, uh, they're up against a lot. I mean, Mr. Putin is looking carefully, you know, he does not want a democracy in Belarus. Right. So I think the stakes are, are, are tall and the odds are, uh, high or rather the odds aren't high, but, um, it does look like at least people have a chance there. Um, I don't know if you could say the same thing in like North Korea or China, right? So there's there's different levels of um, optimism I think we have for different struggles around the world. But we're certainly at this, uh, I, I would say, civilizational hinge point when, when it comes to human rights. So now, now is the kind of time to double down and promote all this kind of open source software that can empower individuals when, they're, when their governments aren't listening. Is technology the most effective kind of game changer here for freedom and democracy? I mean, technology is a tool 
um, democracy itself is a tool, right? Um, ultimately, it requires people to drive the technology. People make up everything, right, in, in society and in our world uh, when it comes to, obviously, the human side of the world. Uh, and you look at government structures, societies. So um, I think technology can empower people to fight back. I mean, we've also seen it empower governments. But, I, yeah, I think generally speaking, it is the thing that will will keep freedom and, and, and civil liberties alive in the future. Just more and more of our stuff is going to be digital, right? So more and more of interac our interactions are going to be digital. Um, I mean, we'll still live in the real world here with, like, houses and roads and stuff like that. But the way that we interact and the way that the power structures relate to one another are increasingly digital. So technology's got to be uh, the way that we protect ourselves uh, or else we'll definitely slide into this, uh, you know, techno-authoritarian state that the Chinese are, are pushing quite quite hard on. So so amidst that backdrop, the Oslo Freedom Forum comes at an interesting time. We've got speakers who are like on the front lines of all these hotspots. You know, we have a major speaker from Thailand, right? Huge country in South Asia that's got a, like an amazing democratic revolution happening right now where people are like rising up against the monarchy, against the military in the streets. I mean, you've got, you've got the most famous dissident defector from Hong Kong, who's fled Hong Kong, Nathan Law, he's speaking. Um, obviously, there's been years of, of protest and, and authoritarian crackdown there. We have panels on topics ranging from Belarus to Kashmir. Um, so we're trying to cover all the major sort of hotspots and bring kind of the experts from on the ground, not experts from like universities or like academies, but experts from people who actually live in these places. They're going to come and teach us about what's going on. That's kind of the way we, we like to uh, work. And then we have a variety of other you know, pretty stellar keynote, keynote speakers that I think you all, uh, the Bitcoin magazine following, I think we would particularly enjoy, um, not maybe directly related to Bitcoin, but certainly related to the values and the uh, goals through which a lot of people um, want to use Bitcoin to achieve. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about the, those values a little bit. Um, I, I am currently working on an article um, kind of about the the values that adopting Bitcoin, like people that adopt Bitcoin, they kind of pick up on certain values because those values are kind of hard-coded into Bitcoin and hard-coded into hard money and hard-coded into permissionlessness. I'm kind of curious, like what kind mm -hmm. of values uh, are being kind of discussed uh, at, at the forum? Right. So... I think it comes from this universal acknowledgement that nobody wants a dictator. No one wants some, you know, unelected authority, some unelected bureaucracy to rule their lives. They want to have a say in their life and they want to be sovereign in some way. And a lot of these individuals who are in our community speak for millions, right? They're like leaders of organizations, leaders of movements. And, you know, I think it's quite important to realize that, that this is pretty universal. This has nothing to do with your skin color or religion or where you were born. Like nobody wants to live under a dictator. People want a good life for their families. They want peace. Uh, they want a good, good you know, opportunity to go out and make a living. Um, and dictatorship is like in the way of all these things, whether you know it or not. You know, there's a lot of brainwashing that goes on in these countries and uh, well in every country, but especially in countries with a low information environment. Um, but at the end of the day, nobody, nobody wants to be ruled by an unelected, uh, corrupt bureaucracy. Um, and that's kind of like what we're all fighting against. So the Oslo Freedom Forum speakers come from all over the world. We have an environmentalist from Cuba. 
we have a student protester from Sudan. Um, you know, we have a, you know, anti-corruption journalist who, you know, she's coming from Russia. Um, so the activists who speak are coming from very different perspectives, but none of these people, you know, want a unelected, uh, you know, dictator or a small group of people controlling their lives and making all their decisions for them. They, they, they want to have more of a balance. They want the people to be more in charge. Right. And, um, I think it, it's an interesting perspective because it, it makes you realize that we take a lot of what we have in open societies for granted. Right. Um, we can criticize, uh, well, I can criticize my country quite a bit, the United States, or maybe you live in Germany or Japan or, or Costa Rica or any, any of the number of, you know, dozens and dozens of democracies around the world, Iceland, New Zealand. And I think there's a lot to criticize in every country, but the thing is we can criticize, like we, there, there are mechanisms through which we can push back. And that's so, so important to, you know, the general human need to continue to try to improve, strive for a better life for our future generations. And that's just not an option for people who live under dictatorships. Like they have no mechanism. They, they have no party to, to vote for. That's not the official one. So most of these states are like one party states, right? They have no independent media outlet where they can speak their voice. They have no way to like coordinate in a way that's safe. So um, these governments really try and uh, basically control that, you know, human contact, human connection um, and stop people. They try to cut all those horizontal ties between people and they try to sort of just like force their way. And at the end of the day, what are all these dictators doing? They're just looting. They're just stealing from the people, right? Whether it's through monetary policy or through straight confiscation or uh, bans of different things or forced labor, they're just stealing people's time and energy, right? And in that way, I think Bitcoin is a really interesting check against that, both at the micro and the macro level. Like at the micro level, you can just opt out and just choose not to use their system and receive value from someone around the world in a peer-to-peer way that can't be controlled by them. Now, there's still like, we're still living in a world where, you know, no reason, no one reasonably can say we're living in this Bitcoin circular economy. But the very fact that like you can, you know, you can get around the legacy financial system to support people in these places and they can make an income or receive donations um, in a way that's censorship resistant is a really, really big deal. Um, but also like macro economically, I mean, it, it, it ultimately we're headed in a direction where inevitably if Bitcoin continues to increase in value and prominence and awareness, that governments will just have less control over the economy. Like this is sort of like where we're headed. Um, and I think that's good. I, I'm not someone who's like an anarchist. I'm actually kind of a progressive, but, but I think these governments need to be checked. And I think Bitcoin will do an interesting job of, of, of checking their power. I don't think it'll um, certainly not remove their power completely. Um, I don't think anything can do that, but, but I do think it gives the people an interesting check on uh, authoritarian power. And that's something that, you know, we continue to explore. Yeah. And I guess discussing that exploration, uh, I think that like you really were the first outspoken person from the human rights foundation to advocate for Bitcoin and, you know, encryption and a lot of this kind of like technology that is associated with what is happening, you know, in the Bitcoin space. Uh, mm-hmm. But it seems as though the organization has really kind of started to reorient around promoting Bitcoin and other sort of dissonant technology. Can you talk about that evolution in the Human Rights Foundation and uh, and kind of how the Human Rights Foundation grew around Bitcoin? Well, I mean, we always have been 
very focused on technology as a tool for freedom. So when I first started working for HRF in 2007, you know, there was no Bitcoin, obviously. Um, but, you know, we were looking at how to get information into closed information environments. So we were like sending movies and books and films into the underground library movement in Cuba, right? We were, we were sending movies and books and films on USB sticks into North Korea. So we were trying to figure out how culture and information and education could be sent in side these like closed environments um, and they can become windows to the outside world and they can start chipping away at the authoritarianism from within. So we immediately realized that very young as an organization, because we were founded in 2005, that technology was going to be sort of key. And then starting in 2013, we had a very um, strong commitment annually ever since to digital security, uh, just from a perspective of like VPNs, encryption, um, whether that be something that's a little more kind of like you know, surface level or even something like Tor. Um, but we've, we've been working with security experts and mingling them with the human rights community. Uh, I think it's fair to say that 10 years ago, most human rights activists did not protect themselves on the internet. And today they do. And I think a lot of that's because of a lot of this awareness that groups like ours have been spreading in, in, in the community. So we organized an entire event last year, entirely on Signal, for example, everything, right, with like 100 people. So it's just very important that we can kind of communicate in a way that's, that's, that's um, you know, relatively private, right, um, that has pretty good privacy, super, super important. And it's easier today. Like when we first started, I remember we were sending, you know, you know PGP emails, which is kind of a pain. I mean, it's great, but it was kind of a pain. And Signal, apps like Signal are, are such a sort of game changer for that just make it so much easier because people just don't have the time, right? People don't have the time to uh, to deal with a lot of the detail, the average person. I think it, it's important for the educators and journalists to learn how to use these things, but like the average person is not going to go through something that's super complicated. So um, Bitcoin is, is, uh, is something that kind of grew later. Like I remember I still have in my HRF email, I have my first uh, mention of Bitcoin was when someone wrote to us in 2013 and said, hey, can we support the activists in Ukraine who were about to enter into the, you know, the Ukrainian revolution at Maidan Square a few months later um, and then witness the invasion of Ukraine, Crimea, all of that, right? Um, but, you know, at that time, they were, like, galvanizing, they were organizing, and someone who was working with them wrote to us, and we started talking about Bitcoin at that point. And then in 2014, we started accepting our first donations in Bitcoin, and we, we started to realize it would be something really interesting, but we, we didn't actually start doing programming on it for a few years late until, until a few years later, until 20, uh, until 2017. So it's, it's really been a, um, a journey for us as well, but I think it's, um, it, it's a logical kind of evolution. If you're concerned about private communications and encryption, and you think technology can be a powerful force for the individual, I, and it's a little, it's a bit of a stretch for a lot of people, but, Bitcoin is kind of the next logical step, I would say, um, for you to start to explore how technology can empower people. And I will say that, like, the dissidents and activists that I meet when I talk to them about this money that's not controlled by corporations or governments and it's open for everybody and it's borderless, like, they're, like, immediately interested. There's not a lot of skepticism. If you go talk to somebody who lives in, like, London or San Francisco, yeah, they're, like, immediately skeptical. They're like, what is this scam or whatever? But for people who are fighting authoritarianism, like they're very interested right away. So I think there's like a lower, um, 
you know, wall of resistance that you need to climb. So hopefully we'll be sitting here in, you know, uh, 2030 talking about how like everybody's using Bitcoin and it's cool, but like 10 years ago, they weren't in the same way that today we're talking about how everybody's using uh, encrypted messaging, but they weren't 10 years ago. Right. I think it's kind of kind of be a similar uh, time scale. Yeah. And I mean, I guess talking about Bitcoin adoption and Bitcoin's destigmatization, you when you speak about Bitcoin, you speak about Bitcoin as something that gives people freedom as a tool for good. Um, but that is not a common narrative around mm-hmm. Bitcoin, even still, you know, 11 years into its yeah. existence. Um, like, can you talk about like zooming out uh looking at, you know, big organizations, big nonprofits, these kind of groups that, you know, are fueling a lot of the, you know, what is acceptable in, in, I guess, in, in charity and that kind of work, like how, how long is it going to take for them to see Bitcoin as being like this evil thing to being like a tool that they can leverage to, you know, help the world in humanitarian purposes? I know that was a roundabout question, but yeah, no, I mean, look, uh, encrypted messaging took a long time to become normalized, right? So, at the beginning, it was seen as really radical. Like, if you go back to the read the read the mainstream media about like things like PGP in the '90s, like it was not looked upon in a friendly way, right? It was seen as this sort of like um, dangerous uh, extremist thing, right? Um, U.S. government tried to ban it before they realized that they they really couldn't practically do that. Um, so fast forward to 2018 or what it was about two years ago. Um, and the former head of the NSA comes out and says every American should use encryption. So, I mean, that took about 30 years, right. For that, that evolution to happen. Um, and now people are very, people, people now are like, yeah, I want my, like, I want to be talking on encrypted messaging. Like these signal alone probably has like a hundred million daily active users and, Telegram, you add all these other ones. I mean, we're talking quite a few people who do messaging every day that are that have a private option or are interested in that. Um, I think it's it's the narrative was not as bad around private messaging because there was less at stake, and and yet it, it still didn't become popular until the usability became became good. Right. So if you if you were going to have to sign into something on your computer, it was only going to be for a niche amount of people. Right. I mean, think about everybody you know that was using PGP in the early 2000s, like not that many people, right? Certainly not in the human rights movement. But once like we had these cell phones and we could download apps that could easily allow you and me to start chatting in a way that was encrypted, okay, all of a sudden we expanded the the the, the reach. And I think you'll see something similar with Bitcoin, but Bitcoin has something else to deal with. It has this public narrative that you speak of, which is not as bad as, as encryption was, even though encryption was was seen as like a negative thing. And privacy, even still today, like when you go open a Google Chrome incognito window, it's like some sketchy guy, right? So there's still this like uh, lingering, um, you know, negativity around privacy in some ways. But but Bitcoin has a, a huge amount of stigma, primarily because the organizations and people that are threatened by it, governments and, and banks basically are have been pumping out this anti-Bitcoin propaganda for years through the mainstream media. So it's like... Um, it's going to be tough, a tough challenge. But look, when people need it, they won't be they won't be Googling like, you know, what is the what does the media say about it? Like when I was talking to this guy who helps run this organization supporting this opposition movement in Belarus, 
he was skeptical of Bitcoin, but like when someone sat him down and showed him that like, this is how we can get the money in. He was like, okay, great. And use that now. So like, as soon as people see that it works, they're in, you know? And I think you can hear that with a lot of these people forget human rights, but think about even just Bitcoin as an investment. You're listening to people like sailor now who totally had written off Bitcoin before are like, like totally sucked in these days. Right. So, and from their perspective, it works meant like it worked as a store of value and it would be a good investment, right? But for a lot of other people, it works means like it, it, it processes in 10, 20 minutes and goes from America to Nigeria or from India to China or whatever they need. And it works. So once they see it, they're convinced and they start using it, right? So there are literally millions of people around the world right now using Bitcoin in this way. So, you know, the, the test is, does it work, right? So we'll have to see, but um, it, it is, it's not like all these people in Belarus who are now receiving Bitcoin <laughs> um, and then, you know, either holding onto it or turning it into rubles. Like it's, it's not like that in, in next year, they're going to forget about the Bitcoin piece, right? They're going to be like, oh, there was this really interesting, like monetary device that I used to like, uh, you know, to go around government, you know, controls last year. I don't think they're going to be like, oh, that was like a one-time thing. So this thing just continues to expand and grow and it's becoming more mainstream, even though you don't, you may not hear about that in the mainstream media. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I like your message because I think that you focus on something that is kind of under reported on. I think that a lot of what's reported on is number go up. Michael Saylor bought X amount of Bitcoin, uh, you know, X terrorist group got, uh, got X amount of Bitcoin confiscated, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're not, people aren't really discussing how, you know, yes, you know, Bitcoin is this tool that allows anyone to use it, but that also enables people to permissionlessly move away from their dictators. That also permissionlessly enables people to move away from the land that they have been kind of, uh, you know, all their value have been has been stuck to um, you know, move away from the family member that's been, you know, abusive, like it really gives people a lot of mobility that, you know, gives them the choice and, you know, ultimately kind of creates the competition that's needed for, uh, you know, human rights to, to thrive. Because if people don't have choice and they're stuck in the same place and there's no mobility, then there's no way that human rights can thrive. Right. Just such an under, underspoken well, about narrative. This is what's very interesting to see what will happen over the next coming year, because arguably the Snowden revelations, you know, they played a huge role in um, encouraging people to download encrypted messaging apps. Right. And in pressuring companies to add that functionality to their platforms. Right. If you actually look at things like WhatsApp, et cetera, it was a, such a big raging debate in the media. Right. So now we have the FinCEN files. Right. Which which arguably is, you know coming off the back of the Panama Papers, I mean, to me, should be at least as prominent as what happened with Snowden. I don't know if it's going to get there. Like, I don't know if you're going to see people on television talking about the FinCEN files. And that sucks. And I think that's because, in a way, you know, all these people, you know, all these people are sort of part of this machine, right? Like, the, the machine that Bitcoin seeks to disrupt is, is, is the most formidable one, right? It's, it's the Davos elite. It's all, how all the money works. It's how all the money flows around the world. Um, so it's going to be really difficult, but the, the timing of the FinCEN files is very interesting because 
Um, it just shows that there's this like rigged game that people at the top who make money and then distribute it through commercial banks, you know, are enjoying this huge cancel on effect from, right. Um, they're able to hide their money. They're able to make more of it. They're able to not pay their taxes and they're able to do that through a system that they control. And the fact that Bitcoin is just this different system that certainly doesn't guarantee any good behavior from its users, but it's just, it's a fair system. Like nobody can create more or prevent anyone from accessing it or, you know, there's, there's no back doors or, or, you know, everything is, you know, visible in terms of the allotment of the 21 million. Right. So, you know, we know where it all is. So it's, it's interesting timing and we'll have to see what happens in the post FinCEN files world. But, you know, we could certainly start to see this kind of like uh, reaction against it. Although I will, I will say that um, it could be, it could be the opposite is the other take. Um, I know Andreas Antonopoulos had mentioned this, but, uh, you know, he, he says that um, it's going to be the opposite, right? Like the FinCEN files will be incentive for governments to crack down even more on, on the financial industry, right? And to have new restrictions and new rules. And, you know, maybe maybe he's, he's right there. But e- either way, I think you'll see the people start to realize that with Bitcoin, they have this quite powerful tool. Yeah, and I mean, I think that, you know, when you look at the East, or maybe not the East, but not liberal democracies, you know, people look at the government kind of like the enemy or as a nuisance. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think that people living in democracies ne- necessarily feel that way about their governments, at least uh, directly. And they they really believe that government is something that is kind of like inherently good and can be controlled by the people. Um, and, you know, I think that, that that's why you're pushing for democracy. But uh, to some degree, you know, what government does isn't necessarily inherently good. And even in Western democracies, um, we're seeing, you know, them acting worse and worse and acting more totalitarian. And it is a little it is scary kind of just seeing that evolution. You know, we we all think that democracy is something that can help us. But uh, we are seeing, you know, the biggest democracies get corrupted, too. Yeah, again, democracy is just a tool for decentralizing political power. I mean, it doesn't guarantee a good outcome. I mean, democracies have done terrible things like invade and destroy other countries. Um, but they are a uh, they're not sufficient, but I would say they're like a necessary step towards a more open society. Like you, you definitely want <laughs> like elections. You, you definitely want uh, checks on government power. You want things like the Supreme Court. You want things like an independent media. You want things like a constitution. These are really, really helpful um, structures in society, but they, they can only go so far, right? Sometimes they, as you say, get corrupted or don't work. And that's why this like open source software is, is like the last sort of thing that we can rely on in, the, in these times, especially as we, we become all more digital and everything we do. The fact that we'll have this assurance that at least we can pr- privately communicate Right. That fact that we'll have this assurance that um, we can permissionlessly transact in a censorship resistant way. That's hopefully very private, too. Um, these are big, 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 big deals. Right. Um, and, and again, perhaps the only thing that will save us from kind of the slow slide into techno authoritarianism. Yeah, um, I was speaking to uh, El Sultan. Uh, he is a Bitcoin consultant in Venezuela, and he was saying like how how amazing is it that um, that a 
GitHub repository at some point could become more valuable of a financial tool than all the banking sector put together. Um, so it is amazing how, you know, something as humble as an open source repo can, you know, ultimately create a lot of the freedoms that we're fighting for. Um, Alex, it's been awesome to have you on the show, talk about the Oslo Freedom Forum, as well as kind of, you know, discuss these different uh, topics in the evolution of freedom. Uh, before we go, why don't you kind of plug yourself and, and talk about any calls to action for later this week uh, for the Oslo Freedom Forum this Thursday and Friday? Yeah, look, um, I think folks should tune in. Uh, it's going to be 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern. It's a little early for the Pacific folks. Um, but it'll be on oslofreedomforum.com. Come check it out. Um, if you sign up there, you can get updates on the schedule. But we didn't want to do a conference that was, like, interrupted by internet, bad internet connectivity and someone has, like, a bad webcam. So we've, like, created a cinematic experience for you all. It's going to be pretty amazing. And I don't think you've ever seen anything like it. So I really think that you should check it out at least. The first speaker on Thursday morning is a Uyghur journalist who used to work for a propaganda outlet in, in China. It's, she's an amazing, amazing speaker. And then it just goes from there. Seriously, all these speakers are heavy, heavy hitters. And we've been working so hard with them on their speeches. And this stuff's really going to blow you guys away. Um, so tune in. And remember that this is, you know, a digital version of what is normally a, like a physical festival that happens in Norway, where I hope some of you guys can come and, and be there with us next year. But it's really this remarkable three, four day moment in time where we all just kind of connect and learn about how we can fight back against dictatorship and authoritarianism. And, you know, Bitcoin's playing, in, you know, a bigger and bigger role in that. Um, there will be a like a, a Q&A about the, Bit, the Bitcoin development fund that HRF launched during the Oslo Freedom Forum later this week. So if any listeners want to learn how they can register for that, they can just they can just message me at, at, at Gladstein on Twitter or by email at alex at hrf.org. All right, awesome. Well, Bitcoin Magazine is going to be covering it. We're going to be live tweeting the entire time. And uh, I'm excited to see the cinematic experience as a content creator uh, and event organizer uh, living in Corona. I'm always looking for new inspiration <laughs> on how we can how we can bring that industry into the, the digital as well. So excited to see what you guys have come up with. Thanks, Christian. I really appreciate your time and hope to see everybody at the Oslo Freedom Forum later this week. All right, get over there, Bitcoiners. Cheers. Bye. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.